Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On today's program, we feature Noticias Sin Fronteras, news from the Americas, Mumia Bujamal's first radio commentary since his recent medical crisis under dubious medical care from the prison system. We'll have a conversation with Detention Center Watch Network about closing of family detention centers. We'll also hear the poetry of Chicano poets Arturo Mantecón and Charles Mariano and Francisco Alarcón. And we bring you news on the situation in Haiti and protests that are kicking off tomorrow. All this in a commentary by our own Nina Serrano y mucha, mucha música. Stay tuned. Tonight's show was produced by Nina Serrano, Vanessa Bohm, Vilma V, and myself, Julieta Kusnid. Enjoy. This is Velma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending June 21st. Panama. Earlier this month, the Panamanian Supreme Court announced that it has launched an investigation into allegations that ex-president Ricardo Martinelli ordered the illegal wiretapping of members of the Panamanian opposition. Martinelli, who was Panama's president from 2009 to 2014, is already under investigation over alleged corruption. The alleged victims of the illegal wiretaps include high-ranking members of the Revolutionary Democratic Party, as well as José Luis Varela, who happens to be the brother of the current president of Panama, Juan Carlos Varela. Ex-president Martinelli left Panama just days before the Supreme Court voted to investigate him over alleged corruption. He is believed to be living in Miami, Florida. Cuba The Cuban government announced last week that it plans to offer Wi-Fi signals in 35 different public spaces on the island. It is the first offering for the public at large since allowing web access at designated internet cafes. The island currently has the lowest internet usage rates in the world, with only 3.4% of Cuban homes connected to the internet. Five of the 35 sites offering public internet access will be in the capital of Havana. Each Wi-Fi spot will be able to handle 50 to 100 Internet users. Venezuela. The National Election Council in Venezuela has announced a December 6th date for the country's National Assembly elections. The timing of the elections has been a source of conflict, with opposition groups accusing the government of delaying the scheduling of elections for political reasons. President Nicolás Maduro's party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, currently holds a majority of seats, but support for his party remains unclear in the wake of dropping oil revenues and chronic shortages of basic goods. The head of the election council, Tibisay Lucena, declared that the official campaign period in Venezuela would be from November 13th through December 3rd, 2015. Brazil Last Friday, Brazilian police arrested the president of two of the country's largest construction companies for their alleged involvement in the massive corruption scheme at the country's state-owned oil company, Petrobras. Marcelo Odbrecht and Octavio Marquez de Acevedo were taken into custody along with another eight executives from the two construction companies. The construction companies are called Odbrecht and Andrade Gutierrez. 
The alleged corruption involved at least $800 million in bribes and other illegal funds. Brazilian federal prosecutor Carlos Fernando dos Santos Lima said, quote, We have money laundering professionals in Brazil, and we have no doubt that Odebrecht and Andrade Gutierrez headed the cartel scheme inside Petrobras. I do not see how the companies can claim innocence given how much evidence we have, end quote. Both construction companies denied any wrongdoing and are said to be cooperating with the Brazilian authorities. Chile. Chilean authorities have declared a smog emergency in Chile's capital of Santiago. According to city officials, the pollution has reached a critical level. Capital residents have been urged to stay indoors and industries considered particularly polluting have been temporarily shut down. This June has been one of the driest in the country since 1968, and the lack of rain has contributed to the poor air quality in Santiago, a city with over 5 million inhabitants. The pollution comes just as the Copa America football tournament is being held in Chile. The first quarterfinal game between Chile and Uruguay is scheduled for tomorrow. Puerto Rico According to the New York Times, a South Carolina Republican has sent an alarming letter to his fellow Republicans in the House of Representatives urging them to create a, quote, financial control board to intervene into the Puerto Rican government's financial affairs. Jeffrey Duncan, who is the Republican chairman of the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, wrote in his letter to his colleagues, quote, I believe legislation to require the establishment of a financial control board to enable the politically unpalatable changes necessary to put Puerto Rico back on the road to self-determination may be needed. He went on to say that Puerto Rico's current financial problems may result in, quote, management changes in the Commonwealth. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Dylan Roof, the 21-year-old accused 
of this massacre, had no friends to speak of, no place to stay other than an associate's couch, no job, and a tenuous relationship with his parents. Isolated, alienated, alone in the world, his sole remaining possession was his whiteness, the only thing that gave his existence meaning. That was the energy that fueled the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina. It now sits like an incubus in the American soul, seething hatred and fear, waiting for more black lives to consume. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. This is a commentary by Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles on June 23, 2015. A few days ago, on the evening of June 17, a mass shooting took place at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. The church is one of the United States' oldest black churches and has long been a site for community organizations around civil rights. A white, mass-murdering racist killed the following nine African-American people in cold blood for the cause of white supremacy during a Bible study session. We mourn their loss. I will recite their names in the hopes that their deaths will not be in vain, that southern states and even bars and other establishments throughout the whole country will finally take down and renounce the Confederate flag and its hateful cause that defends racism and injustice. Yesterday, Governor Nikki Haley, flanked by elected officials of both parties, called for the flag to be removed by the state legislator, saying that while the flag was an integral part of our past, it does not represent the future, unquote. We are not going to allow this symbol to divide us any longer, she said. Haley said she would call for a special session of the legislature if they did not act. If you would like to sign a petition calling for the removal of the flag, Go to www.change.org. And now I'm going to read you the names of the slain church members. Cynthia Marie Graham Hurd, age 54, Bible study member and manager for the Charleston County Public Library System. Susie Jackson, age 87, a Bible study and church choir member. Ethel Lee Lance, the church sexton. DePayne Middleton Doctor, a Bible study teacher employed as a school administrator and admissions coordinator at Southern Wesleyan University. Clementa C. Pickney, age 41, the church pastor and a South Carolina state senator. Tawanza Saunders, age 26, a Bible study member and nephew of Susie Jackson. Daniel Simmons, age 74, a pastor who also served at Greater Zion AME Church in Awindaw. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, age 45, a pastor 
also a speech therapist and track coach at Goose Creek High School. Myra Thompson, age 59, a Bible study teacher. May they all rest in peace. May the forces for justice and racial equality triumph in the United States and around the world. Amen. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I have on the line with me Mary Small. She is the policy director of the Detention Watch Network. Here at La Raza Chronicles, we have been covering some of these horrible cases that we've been hearing from from time to time around these family detention centers, most recently of the young woman who tried to commit suicide. She was separated from her young child and just a really tragic story that has spurred a lot of national interest and that now actually there are congresspeople that are going to go visit. We're specifically thinking about Karn's Detention Center in Texas. But I'd love for you to take a step back and just paint a picture for us. How big is this issue in terms of detention centers in the United States? Who generally is being held at, at these detention centers? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I think the most important point to start with is that the immigration detention system in the United States is absolutely enormous. It's made up of a sprawling network of 209 facilities all across the country. There are about 34,000 people detained at any point in time, and over the course of a year, just shy of 400,000 people will be detained, and many of them ultimately deported. So the huge number of people who were directly impacted, and then families and communities um, who also experienced the impact of having their loved ones incarcerated within the immigration detention system. In terms of who it is that's detained, you know, a lot of folks think that the only people who are detained are people who are here without papers. But it's actually more than that. It's also long-term legal permanent residents who have somehow come into contact with the criminal justice system, people who have overstayed visas, asylum seekers, and then, again, undocumented folks. So it's a pretty varied population. So a lot of us heard about this really tragic case of this young woman who was deported after attempting suicide. That brings up the question of conditions within these detention centers and also the sense of just hopelessness that people have once they're stuck. Can you give us a sense of what it's like for a lot of the people who are being detained and are in these centers for who knows how long? So the average length of stay, it, it, it's hard to put a number on it because what ends up happening is that there's a, a large group of people who end up, unfortunately, being deported relatively quickly. And then there's a large group of people who are often there for a very long time. So an average doesn't really tell you very much because it sort of splits the difference. We are, of course, concerned about anyone who's detained, but particularly concerned about people who experience prolonged detention, because I'm sure as your listeners are aware and as illustrated by the, the young woman that you were just speaking of, the kind of psychological impacts of being detained and living in that permanent limbo of not knowing how long it is that you're going to be detained and unable to reunite with loved ones um, really takes a toll on people. And so you see the, the impacts of prolonged detention just mounting over time, and this has been particularly concerning in the family detention context. You know, just a couple of days ago, 
we passed the mark of one year of reopening this large-scale family detention facilities. And so we now have families and a fair number of them who've been detained for over a year. And just imagine the impact on the development of a child who's four years old, who spent the majority of the life that they can remember inside a detention facility. Do we know anything about the overall cost and the investment that's been made to continue to split apart families, people from their loved ones? This is an extraordinarily expensive proposition. So overall, the U.S. government spends about $2.2 billion, billion with a B, every year on immigration detention. It costs about $160 a day to detain an adult. And family detention is just astronomically expensive. It's about $342 per day. And that's, you know, hard-earned taxpayer dollars that are being used really unnecessarily to detain people who don't need to be detained. I'm speaking to Mary Small. She's the policy director of the Detention Watch Network. So I know the Detention Watch Network is doing a lot to draw attention to the fact that there's oftentimes a push to increase the number of people that are filling the beds. Can you talk to us more about this practice that is maybe perpetuating the fact that we have so many people being detained? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the the best kept secrets within the U.S. government is something called the Immigration Detention Bed Quota. And that quota is written every year by Congress into the appropriations of the funding bill for the Department of Homeland Security. And it requires Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, the enforcement agency within the U.S. government, to maintain 34,000 detention beds at any given point in time. It's a shocking reality, if you think about it, to have a law enforcement agency have their practice driven by a quota for incarceration. And and I I want to be really clear, this is not some well-reasoned, highly measured number. It was completely arbitrary, just pulled out of the air by some Congress people back in 2009 and reinserted into the funding bill every year since that time. And so at a national level... This quota for 34,000 detention beds to be in existence and to be filled every single day is driving immigration enforcement and immigration detention. My organization, Detention Watch Network, just recently released a report along with the Center for Constitutional Rights on a parallel system of quotas at the local level. So there are the national quotas, the 34,000, and then at the local level into contracts that the government signs with private companies, something and they're called a guaranteed minimum, and it's a contractual provision that promises a certain population will be present at any point in time. And so you have a quota that operates at the local level as well, and and we're deeply afraid it's affecting immigration enforcement decisions at the local level. So how does this connect to the number of detention centers and also who's being detained? It's not necessarily driving the number of detention facilities, because what we've seen over the last several years is that the number of facilities has gone down, but the facilities that exist have gotten bigger. And so one great example of that is Dilly, which is one of the family detention facilities in Dilly, Texas. It has the status of the largest detention facility in the United States. It can hold 2,400 people, which is an absolutely enormous number of people to be held inside of a facility, particularly when you're thinking about mothers and children. And so you have seen these facilities grow in size, which not only kind of creates concerns about how chaotic and crowded it is inside those facilities, but also very real concerns about things like due process. One of the things that we hear so often from attorneys in San Antonio, which is the closest big metro area to Dilly, Texas, is that they don't have nearly enough of a pool of pro bono or or low-cost attorneys to be able to serve that huge of a population. That's the voice of Mary Small. She's the policy director at the Detention Center Network. So, Mary, you've mentioned 
There's this family detention facility in San Antonio. This is right now, a lot of people are looking at Carnes Family Detention Facility. Can you tell us about that facility in particular? So interestingly, the, the closest metro area for Carnes is also San Antonio, but it's in the complete opposite direction from Dilly. And so they're both putting an enormous strain on very limited legal representation resources in San Antonio Carnes is run by the GEO Group, which is one of the two largest private prison companies in the United States. Interestingly, Dilly is run by the other one, the Corrections Corporation of America, CCA. And so there are two big private prison companies, and they each got a family detention facility to profit off of. But again, Carnes is run by GEO Group. And part of the reason that a lot of attention has been on Carnes recently is because the women who are incarcerated inside of Carnes have just been tremendously courageous in organizing themselves. And so you heard about a hunger strike that happened earlier in the year, some retaliation against the women who organized the hunger strike, uh, the suicide attempt that you, that you just mentioned. And so there has been, and appropriately so, a fair amount of focus on, on Carnes and what exactly is happening inside of that facility. So you mentioned how large these industries are in terms of the private prisons. So tell us more about what that looks like and what impact that has. Yeah, so there are multiple private companies that are involved in immigration detention, either in running the facilities or providing detention-related services. I think one of the the kind of high point that's so concerning for us is that immigration detention has become essentially a marketplace where people are being negotiated over for profit within these contracts. And I think we can all appreciate how dangerous that is and how dehumanizing that can be. At this point in time, private companies run 62% of the immigration detention beds in the United States. And so over half of the immigration detention and is being profited off of. And remember, I, I said that overall, the U.S. government spends $2.2 billion taxpayer dollars on this every year. And so you know a significant proportion of that is going to these private companies. And one point I want to drive home is that private companies run 62% of the overall immigration detention system, but 95% of family detention. And so family detention has been a huge source of, of profit income these private prison companies. And one of the reasons that we want to be so aggressive about shutting it down right now is because once these companies get used to getting a a regular stream of profit from these facilities, they become harder and harder and more entrenched and so harder to shut down, And which is part of why we and, and encouraging all of your listeners should take action and be aggressive right here on the front end. So for folks who've never been inside any of these facilities, is it like a typical prison or what are the conditions like inside? So they cover a wide range. I mean, there are some adult detention facilities that are identical to prisons. And in fact, some of the facilities that immigrants are detained in while they're awaiting their court proceedings are actually the same building as folks who are being held on criminal charges. They're just in a different wing. And so it is absolutely appropriate to picture um, whatever your picture of a jail or prison might be. There are also facilities that may not have, you know, barbed wire or the jail cells that you're thinking of. But for the people who are incarcerated, everything about their daily life and their movement is still controlled. They're still not free. And so even if at first glance, the conditions might look nicer, the impact of being detained on these folks still remains. Across the entire system, you hear constant complaints about the medical care that's provided. Um, a lack of appropriate mental health services, a lack of accurate information about people's cases, about access to legal representation. The number of deaths in detention, including suicides, are much higher than they should be. And we do continuously hear concerns about verbal and physical abuse by guards. So all of that kind of goes across the entire system. Um, With family detention, the the two biggest concerns have consistently been lack of access to counsel and and medical-related concerns. 
um, which is not surprising. You have you have a whole bunch of kids who are basically incarcerated, and of course, they're going to be health effects of that. Because of these courageous women, we have the spotlight, and we have Congress people that are actually going to visit Carnes facility and perhaps others. Can you tell us about opportunities to change the way these centers run, or perhaps address some of the issues that you've laid out so far? Yeah, you're exactly right. So there's eight members of Congress who were down visiting Carnes and Dilly actually just today. And so we look forward to hearing their kind of report out from being inside of those facilities. I think we at this point are not actually talking about ways to improve what's happening inside of those facilities. Family detention actually just needs to end. And that was the government's practice until very recently. Within his first 100 days of office, when President Obama came into office, one of the reforms that he enacted was actually to close down the previous large-scale family detention center. It was named Hutto. It was also in Texas. As a result of a lot of long-term, successful, powerful organizing, also some litigation that didn't go their way, but also a recognition that you cannot detain families humanely. It just simply can't be done. And so President Obama, in his first 100 days, stopped detaining families at Hutto and put an end on family detention at a large scale. And that's what we need to go back to. There is no way to fix it. There is no way not to affect children's development. There is no way to kind of do this process humanely. And I think the other piece that's really important to point out is that the overwhelming majority of the families who are being held in these facilities are asylum seekers. 88% of the mothers and children have passed the first step of the asylum process, meaning that by the government's own measure, by their own measure, these women and children are asylum seekers, and so there's absolutely no reason to be detaining them. So Mary Small, are there any other campaigns that Detention Watch Network is working on that our listeners can plug in and join? Yeah, I would direct your listeners to our website, which is www.detentionwatchnetwork.org. So detentionwatchnetwork.org. You can find a lot of information about campaigns and ways to plug in. Again, the things that we are really actively campaigning on right now are ending family detention and then ending the congressional bed quota, which, as I mentioned, is this arbitrary quota that just drives ramped up immigration enforcement. In terms of reaching out to their members of Congress, again, Congress is the one that's responsible for the quota system being in place. Right now, Congress is considering the funding packages for next year. They're in committees discussing them right now. And so if your listeners are willing to call a member of Congress and ask for the detention bed quota to be taken out of the funding packages for next year, that would be amazing. The White House is really who's driving this resurgence of family detention. This was a political calculation made by this administration as a way to show that they were kind of being tough on enforcement and they've gone about it in completely the wrong way. And so the White House is who should be targeted. If your listeners want to call or write or send a postcard, the White House asking them to end family detention. And on that postcard note, actually, if you go to our website, you can actually ask us to send you a pack of postcards and you and your family and friends can send them to the White House asking President Obama to stop this misguided policy. And if someone's listening and they have a friend or family member that is currently being detained in a family detention facility, what can they do? What what recourses are there for people that are detained and stuck in this limbo? One of the things that they can do is if their family member has not yet connected with a pro bono attorney, there is a, a pro bono project called the CARA Pro Bono Project. If you go to the website of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, so American Immigration Lawyers Association, you can find information about the CARA Pro Bono Project there and connect your family member to one of those attorneys. The other thing that uh, if you have uh, family members who are detained that you can do is there's an amazing group based out of San Antonio called the Interfaith Welcome Coalition. It's an interfaith group of folks who have just been remarkable 
in their service and commitment to supporting the families who are being detained in family detention. They, um, every night, go to the San Antonio Greyhound bus station to meet the women and children who have been released from detention to give them some supplies for the rest of their journey, make sure they know where they're going and that they have a safe place to spend the night if their bus doesn't leave until the next morning. But they also do visitation inside of the facilities. And so if you think that your loved one might benefit from just having a friendly visitor, a friendly face um, to speak to, connecting with the Interfaith Welcome Coalition um, is also a great idea. Thank you so much. That's been the voice of Mary Small. She's the policy director of the Detention Watch Network, and people can find out more at their website. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Immigrant children, bienvenidos. We are deeply sorry that our tax dollars, controlled by corporate elites, drove you from your family and your homeland. We open our hearts, our arms, our nurseries, our schools, our playgrounds, our sports fields, our youth programs, our after-school programs for your healthy development for your growing minds, for your creative spirits. Welcome, children. May you find safe beds, affectionate adults to guide you, nutritious food, toys and tools to stretch your imagination. Children are born to be happy. May you fulfill your dreams. You've just heard Nina Serrano read her original poem, accompanied by musicians Diana Gameros, Charlie Girk, Edgardo Gambon, and José Roberto Hernández.
So last Wednesday was the deadline for hundreds of thousands of Dominicans of Haitian descent to register with the Dominican government and prove that they are in the country legally. Back in October of 2013, the Dominican Constitutional Court controversially ruled that children born to undocumented immigrants in the Dominican Republic are not Dominican citizens. A year later, in May 2014, a law in response to that court ruling was passed in the Dominican Republic, and since then, its net effect appears to be rendering thousands of people who were born in the Dominican Republic but of Haitian descent apparently stateless. And this law, which was made retroactive to those born after 1929, affects an estimated quarter of a million people, the vast majority locally born poor blacks of Haitian descent. To help explain the controversy and what it means for the people in both countries, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, I have on the line with me Mr. Pierre Laboussier. He is the co-founder of the Haitian Action Committee, and he frequently writes about Haiti in the media. Give us some background about this court ruling. It came out in 2013, the law in 2014, and last week was the deadline to register. What does this all mean? Well, what it means is a system of injustice and apartheid, as, as one writer put it, regarding people of Haitian descent. And this is not a new situation. It's been going on uh, for the longest, this double standard or racist attitude mm -hmm. from the Dominican government. But this is the first time that people who are of Dominican, Dominican citizens, mm -hmm. but who've had uh, their parents originally from Haiti, going way back to 1929, mind you, would be stripped of their citizenship. And so this is a terrible situation. And right now, some of them are leaving uh, because of the climate, the anti-Haitian, anti-black climate that's going on in the Dominican Republic. Many of them are fleeing. Their lives are being destroyed. They are leaving, um, going through all kinds of hardship, uh, flocking into Haiti. And uh, it's a real tragedy. And this anti-Haitian sentiment that's going on there, is this something that is relatively new? Is it modern or has it been around for a while? Well, it's been around ever since and we have to go back and I'll try not to go too much into the historical details. But Haiti, as you know, um, really fought its way out of slavery when, when our foremothers and forefathers from Africa were kidnapped and put in chains and made to work from can't see in the morning till can't see at night. The Africans rebelled 1791 and after a 13 year war freed themselves from the uh, forces of um, Napoleon Bonaparte, which they defeated, and also fought against the Spanish and uh, defeated the Spanish forces and the British forces. But at the time, slavery was the main thing, and these big powers were pushing were slave-owning societies. So by 1822, Haiti was on the, at that time there was no Dominican Republic. It was a colony of Spain in the eastern third of the island, which had been, by the way, ceded to France. And so Haiti, the whole island, had become, was supposed to be independent. But on the eastern side, which is present-day Dominican Republic, there remain entrenched this elite, this racist uh, slave-owning class that continued with slavery. And by 1822, Haiti went there, and, and Haiti had declared the abolition of slavery. And there was an insurrection by the people living on the eastern side that united with Haiti. And Haiti declared the abolition of slavery in 1822. So we can see the, the hatred of this elite, all
oligarchy, the slave owning class, has continued to remain to to this day. And they have infused into a white supremacist ideology, into a narrative that dominates into today's culture, in today's um, spirit of racism in the Dominican Republic in regards to people, in regards to Africa, in regards to black people and Haitians in particular. We're discussing the Haitian situation. Mr. Pierre Laboussier, he is the founder of the Haitian Action Committee. Yes, and I take this opportunity to say that the Haiti Action Committee is planning a protest on this coming Wednesday uh, at uh, the UN Plaza in San Francisco at 5.15 and uh, it's near Macalister and Market Street in San Francisco. It will be near the Bolivar statue. Uh, that will be at 5.15 p.m. People can call our phone of 483-7481 area code 510-483-7481 and um, the people of the Dominican Republic and the people of Haiti at the grassroots level have had the tradition of working together against the forces of reaction, against the forces of fascism. We've helped each other in our struggles for liberation and just as Haiti abolished slavery in the colony of Spain, that became later the Dominican Republic. And as Haitians fought with Dominicans in their struggle for independence as well, when the idea of independence was to annex it or bring back the Spanish, um, to make it a Spanish colony, Haitians fought with them as well for their freedom. That doesn't get mentioned at all because the elites want to keep our people separated using white supremacist ideology to make people feel, well, you're better than Haitians, whereas all of them are suffering from the same um, miseries imposed by the by a racist imperialist uh, structure. So, Pierre, what can people do who are here in the U.S. who are concerned about this issue, whether they're Haitian or Dominican? I believe this is an issue that transcends um, Haitians and Dominicans, and it goes to the heart of the matter in terms of human rights in terms of the rights of people this is an outrage that in 2015 that uh, people are being stripped of their citizenship 500,000 some people have said 600,000 are being have been stripped of their citizenship people can write to their congress people they can call their senators they can definitely put pressure on the Dominican Republic itself and call the Dominican embassy in Washington DC to express their outrage at what is going on well thank you for that the number to the Dominican Embassy in Washington, D.C. is 202-332-7670. I want to thank my guest, Pierre Laboussier, from the Haitian Action Committee. Thank you, Pierre, for speaking with me on La Raza Chronicles.
Señor me complaciera Yo estuviera agradecido A que mujeres y hombres a mí me brinden su cariño A que mujeres y hombres a mí me brinden su cariño Especialmente las mujeres Me traten como un niñito Especialmente las mujeres Me traten como un niñito Y pasen el día y la noche Dando mi abrazo y besito Y pasen el día y la noche Dando mi abrazo y besito Serrano for La Raza Chronicles, I have in the studio two Chicano Sacramento writers, Charles Mariano and Arturo Mantecon. It's a pleasure to have you both here. Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles, Charles. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And to you, Arturo. Likewise. Always a pleasure. They've just put out a book together called Flipside. If you hold it in one direction, it has all of Charles Mariano's poetry, and then if you turn it upside down and hold it the other way, it has Arturo Mantecon's poetry. So let's begin with you, Charles. And can you read us a little from your new book, Flipside? Sure. first one's called Mija. At some point, all the silly faces, giggles, and laughters will stop, and my little girl will look past me, move on. For today, though, this sunshine and funny songs Six years and counting, loves me to pieces. Wish I could bottle up her adoration, pure innocence. Grandpa, yes, mijita. I sang a new song today in school. You did? That's great. Sing it to me. I love my grandpa. He loves me too. We go to the park and laugh and play. I love my grandpa. He loves me too. She stops, looks up at me with that goofy smile, my heart in her tiny hands. Please, please, never grow up, I whisper. What, Grandpa? That was great, Mia. Sing it to me again. What other poems or stories do you have for us? This one's called Superman. 
Yesterday, a story in the Sacramento Bee said a man saved another man from a horrible fire. A man on the side of the road trapped in a burning car. People standing there, frozen, watching him screaming, burning to death. Suddenly, another car stops. A man jumps out, races into the flames, busts out the window, and pulls the man to safety. He came out of nowhere, a witness said, like Superman. The newspaper didn't say a Mexican immigrant who spoke no English because he was. It didn't say he dove into the fire to save a white man. He didn't say a Catholic man saved a Christian man or a poor man saved a rich man. He was just a man. Through a translator, they asked his hero why he risked his life diving into the fire. He needed help, so I helped him, he answered simply. Not a brown face or a purple face, a human face, able to leap religion, race, insane, stupid politics in a single bound, more powerful than runaway hate, Superman. That was Charles Mariano. I like that Superman. <laughs> I also liked that poem about your granddaughter. I know the feeling I'm up to great-grandchildren now, so I've watched my grandchildren become great-grandchildren, and definitely there's that duality that you want to say, no, don't get any older, and then there's a thrill of seeing this whole life and person evolve. This is from my other book, Peacework. The name of this poem is Footprints. Don't want to get into why it felt so bad that we were poor, why I wore ugly shoes and pants that fit too big with holes, that brown duplex on 12th and K we lived in, government housing for those woefully without. Why it bothered me yesterday when I drove by, saw every building leveled, an empty lot. I stopped, took it all in, the air hauntingly quiet. It's all gone now, like Mama and my childhood. Nothing's forever. Family gatherings, Mama cooking up a storm in that small kitchen. The black neighbors, the Martins, the Harrises, magnificently poor like us. Shared tables, best friends, a variety of music. Three Los Panchos, Nat King Cole, James Brown, blared out of our windows. The sweet smell of capirotada and barbecue, wafting, curling. A framed picture of JFK next to the Virgin Mary, a lit candle in the middle. Thanksgiving, Christmas, countless birthdays. That ugly house filled to the brim with warm memories, every loving inch. Don't want to get into why this empty lot bothers me. Why my chest aches for every last precious piece. I see Mom at the window, her food-stained apron, hair and bobby pins, her scarf wrapped tight around her head like Aunt Jemima, waving goodbye. Thank you, Charles Mariano. He's been reading to us from his book, Flipside and Peacework. Arturo Mantecon, you are also in this book. Why don't you tell us a little bit how you began writing? I began writing short stories in my late 30s. I came late to writing. I was a journalism major in, in school, but I didn't start writing creatively until later in life. I always remained faithful to Rambeau's dictum that a poet was to be a sorcerer. And it wasn't until Francisco Alarcón heard me read some doggerel that he told me, you're a poet. You're a poet and you are going to write a poem and you're going to read it at the De Young Museum for the celebration of the treasures of Teotihuacan. I protested, but he won me over and he convinced me to do it and I've been writing poetry ever since. What a great story. So can you read us one of your short stories? Most of the stories are a little long to read on the radio, but I will read an excerpt of the first one that appears in the book, The Fortune. We crossed the bridge one rare, breezy Laredo nightfall. My father, my mother, and five-year-old me. We walk far above El Rio Bravo, alive with catfish, prehistoric gar, and long-snouted soft-shelled turtles, all of which 
were to be found in the pestiferous circumstances del Mercado Municipal de Nuevo Laredo, where our six young feet were leading us that long-ago day. Nuestro paseo indolente led us past multitudes of desperate people trying to rub two pesos together for a brief spark of life, men hawking boletos de loteria and others wearing necklaces of garlic for sale, every article imaginable, every possible service for sale. And then we came upon him, and my mother squealed in girlish glee to see the man telling fortunes through the instrument of a small brown bird. Come on! We've got to have Artie's fortune told. My father was less enthusiastic. Oh, si, por supuesto. He definitely needs that. How can a kindergartner bear to live sin saber su destino? No seas así, cabrón. Where is your sense of fun? I left it in a pocket of the pants I wore yesterday. We approached the old man standing by a rickety-legged table, and I was instantly and completely enchanted by what was atop it. There was a long wooden rack with hundreds of little cards standing on edge, and out of a small wooden box, a tiny, canary-like, finch-like brown bird came hopping out, picked out a card, and beaked it deftly to the old man. I had never seen anything so marvelous in my brief life. There was nothing like this in Detroit. Why did Mommy and Daddy have to take me away from this place, this place just across the river from the town of my birth, this place where magic seemed commonplace, and the commonplace magic, and the grotesque, and the beautiful, were unavoidable. I wanted to possess this feathered, hollow-boned soul, wanted it for my own. When my turn came, my impulse was to grab the little bird and run, to hoard it like the animated treasure it was. I would set up a table on Philadelphia Street, where I lived back home, and tell fortunes. I was so young, yet I already knew what career I wanted to pursue. But I checked my desires and thieving thoughts and stood there, my heart beating audibly with the excitement of the discovery of a fascinating beauty. The old man was very courtly and formal of speech. ¿Y la fecha de nacimiento del párvulo, señora? El dos de mayo, señor. The old man then sprinkled some small seeds in a narrow line on the table. The little bird hopped out of his box and followed the path of seeds, eating them on his way. He stepped up to the cards, cocked his head one way and then another, seeming to deliberate on just the right card for me before picking one out and delivering it to his master, who handed it to my mother. Well, Artie, it says here that you were born under the power of Venus, the goddess of love, and that all your life women will throw themselves at your feet. Why are you telling the boy garbage like that? ¿Y por qué no? I'll bet it will happen. I want my son to be prepared to know what's in store for him. What's wrong with that? Híjole, las ocurrencias de esta mujer. On the accuracy of the fortune, I will only say that if a little birdie ever tells you anything, take it with more than a grain of salt. This avian prophecy not only puzzled me, it alarmed me. Why would women want to throw themselves at my feet? What would they be doing down there at the feet of scrawny little me? And if these women were anything like some of my tias, they would send me sprawling or would squash me if they were not careful. That very night, I was awakened from a deep sleep and spirited away to the women's jail of Laredo, Texas, by my grandmother, Margarita Herrera. Oh, you have to tell us a little more about this grandmother. My paternal grandmother, Margarita Herrera, 
was the matron of the women's jail in Laredo, Texas. She had guardianship mainly over the prostitutes that would cross the river into Laredo to ply their trade. These were usually the prostitutes that weren't associated with a house in a house of prostitution in Nuevo Laredo. The name she was known as to the prostitutes and to the general populace of Laredo was Mague la Carcelera. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to both of you, Charles Mariano and Art Montecon. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, too. Thank you. Earlier in the program, Arturo Montecon told us that he was first inspired by Francisco Arlacón to write poetry. Here are some poems by Francisco Arlacón, who has been a dynamic force for California poetry and poets. Poem I enter the poem as I enter a temple, barefoot in awe. I leave all hang-ups, garments by the door. At the age of the abysm, I let myself go. Oh, brothers, oh, sisters, the poem writes me. Crazy. I leave my doors unlocked. Strangers look to me so familiar. I would embrace and kiss them all. Every day on the street, I run into God. Instead of crying, now I laugh. I want to turn the world upside down. Nothing sways me. I must be crazy. America. The accent mark on top of the letter E in America is initial spark of a firework going up in the dark night sky, booming loud and bright. I am your country too this 4th of July. Healers. A shooting star falls in the middle of nowhere. It's a healing poem. Let us all be Gandhi. Let us all be Gandhi. Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Rosa Parks, messengers of peace, reason, tolerance, goodwill, not hatred, anger. All jailed at one time and dismissed by the 1% for their principles. From despair, fear, sorrow, let us all draw enjoyment, faith, and hope. Poetic Manifesto to Poets Responding to SB 1070 Each poem is an act of faith in the power of the word, a flower passed hand to hand, and rooted in the heart, a prayer chant, lightning in the night, a song amidst so much noise, a murmur of three branches at the very edge of the big desert, breaking down the borders of despair, sowing the seeds of renewed hope. Each poem is a call for action, is saying yes to the rule of no, a defiance to social silence built in trust in response to fear, a testimony of the human whole, recognizing 
that in spite of all, all the differences and peculiarities, we all breathe, love, and dream, celebrate, and suffer under the same one sun. A Poet is a River To Jose Montoya, 1932-2013 Chicano Poe Laureate, who decided to celebrate his book Information, 20 Years of Hoda, by reading poems a la Raza Galeria Posada in Sacramento, on April 24, 1993, the same day Cesar Chavez passed away. A poet is a river, flowing unnoticed, caressing stones, moving silt from one place to another, carving canyons all the way to the sea. A poet is a puff of fresh air in any room. A poet is a mirror, a clenched fist, a bleeding nose. A poet is a smile laughter, and tears. A poet becomes a table, a guitar, a house, el barrio, it speaks in tongues, brings back the dead, makes possible dreaming in the fields. You just heard Francisco Arlacón reading his own poetry. That wraps up our show. Muchísimas gracias por escuchar el programa. If you'd like to listen to our show again or share it with a friend, you can like us on Facebook. That's La Raza Chronicles on Facebook.com. Or you could also go to SoundCloud.com and you can listen or download our show there. Muchísimas gracias. If you'd like to share with us some news you think we should cover or events that you think we should put in our calendar, you can always email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Stay tuned for a vacha. <laughs>